You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Old Testament type of things. But it gets very personal when it comes down to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is really about reorienting our perspective toward God. And in the context of what's happening here, if you're familiar with chapter 11, and chapter 11 is the so-called faith chapter of Hebrews. He lists a whole slew of individuals whose faith has been challenged in various and sundry different ways uh, throughout the uh, history of Israel leading up to the time of the church. And I thought this would be a good way of encouraging us because I know this has been a difficult year for many of us. And I don't want to burden you in the slightest today. This is not a finger-wagging kind of sermon. This is a sermon of hope. This is a sermon of encouragement. I originally had um, done the study for this um, as a pre-Thanksgiving message years ago. And I kind of took, took it out again and dusted it off. And I thought, you know, it's about the Bible, so it's still current, it's still relevant. Um, but you might keep in mind that it was uh, originally for uh, Thanksgiving. You recall how the pilgrims came to this country and immediately, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go to a virgin country having nothing else but what you've brought with you and an unclaimed land in front of you, except for, of course, the Native Americans probably would dispute the term unclaimed. But um, bringing everything, and you're here, and you have nothing but yourselves, what you've brought, and God to rely upon. And I, I find that that is kind of relevant to what the people in chapter 11 had been dealing with. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, which is following chapter 11. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses. We're not going to get through the entire chapter today. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For he disciplined us for, for, I'm sorry, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the audience to which the letter of Hebrews is addressed, they are of a Jewish background, and they're getting persecuted for their faith in Christ. As you might suspect, this is making them weary, tired of the whole thing. The weariness is causing them to pull back and lose heart. The writer wants to reorient their perspective by correcting their view of their circumstances and their view of God. He's doing this by way of reminder. They apparently were giving up on their spiritual lives and turning back to worldly pleasures for fulfillment. Obviously, that's a serious problem. So what does the author do? He explains that the difficulties of a faithful life are part of a loving father's discipline intended to make us righteous. This reorienting of perspective is necessary to a living, to living a joyful, fulfilled Christian experience. You know the old saying, when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's hard to remember that you came to drain the swamp. You've heard that before? Well, they were up to their necks in persecution, and they were taking their eyes off of God and putting them onto their circumstances. And that left them in danger of giving up. Remember what happened to Peter when he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves? What happened? He sank. And then he cried out to God. He very quickly reoriented his perspective to Jesus Christ. And he was lifted out of those waves. Just as the best way to get rid of the gators is to drain the swamp, the best way to get out of trials or through trials is to focus on faithfulness to God. The author wants to encourage us on living faithfully to God, and he offers two basic steps of encouragement. And those two steps are the exhortations he gives in the first three and four verses, and then the explanations that he gives to amplify those exhortations in the following verses. Okay, so we'll, we'll uh, go on with the exhortations first, since that's where he started. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he's saying, let's get rid of two things and do one thing. Okay, well, let's set up the context a little bit here. So great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Well, who are those witnesses? Well, those are the people that are in chapter 11, right? Those are the, uh, those people that are spoken of there. It's not just to mention biblically famous people, but to point out the types of things they did, and especially what they endured in their life as a result of faithfulness to God. Everything from testing of Abraham to the trials of the children of Israel to the martyrdom of the prophets is covered in that chapter. So there's this whole range, this whole spectrum of different kinds of trials, persecutions, pains, aches, everything you can think of that is covered in that chapter. Now, in the concluding verses of chapter 11, the author notes in verse 39, let's look there, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
And that's because, continuing on in verse 40, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Uh, that's, that's a little awkward in English. Let me uh, break that down just a little bit. In other words, when Jesus Christ came into the world in our time, after those Old Testament people had died, the promises that they were faithful to that they never saw were fulfilled with us. They were faithful to God all the way through the time they died before the Messiah came, but the Messiah came, and when the Messiah came, that left the possibility for us to know him. So we are actually the sequel to chapter 11. Actually, all the, all the saints from the time of Jesus to the present day are actually the sequel of chapter 11. Because we are the ones that are enjoying the fulfillment of everything that they believed in but never saw. So each one's faith enabled God to move the process of revealing the Messiah one step closer to fulfillment. And they were only able to do that because they were faithful to God and believed in his promises. When we placed our faith in Christ, we joined them in the same promises as the fulfillment of that process. The coming of Jesus perfected the faith they held to even though they didn't live to see it. And we joined them at the time of its perfection. Perfection, you have to understand when the scripture says perfect, it doesn't mean like some you know, theoretically perfectly round ball or something like that from National Institute of Standards, right? It means something that's complete, something that's not lacking anything. It doesn't mean like some sort of theoretical perfection. So we have received everything in completeness that God has meant for us to receive in Christ. So we are included in their group because we are part of the fulfillment of what they believed in. This is our cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Chapter 12 is the prescription for the future based on this truth. As their faith set the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ, it is our faith that sets the stage for his return. So even though we may or may not live to see the return of Jesus, it is our faith that keeps God's program moving forward to the time when Jesus will return. So just as their faith made it, moved it forward to the coming of Jesus, our faith moves it forward to the return of Jesus. And that's how we join them. That's why this is all a continuum. So what does he mean by cloud? Okay, well, you hear about cloud computing and all that. See, they had, see young people, they had cloud back then too, you know? So... The cloud here is not like a little solitary cloud up in the sky, but more like cloud cover. Okay, it's like when the entire sky, horizon to horizon, is covered in clouds. And the implication of that, and the idea of surrounding us, is that it's everywhere. It's not like some, uh, there's an old-fashioned pulpit uh, um, illustration that depicts uh, this cloud of witnesses like the people in the stands around a running track, looking at the runners on the track. It's not that kind of surrounding us. It's the idea like, um, if you've ever done this, walk across the field in the summertime when the grasshoppers are out, and every step you take, about six or eight grasshoppers jump. 
And they're just everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there are these grasshoppers jumping around. That's the idea, is that they're, they're surrounding us. They're just everywhere around us. And that's kind of more like the idea. So then, after setting this context, the writer then gives us three exhortations. First of all, let us lay aside two different things here. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. Now, the word denotes excess weight, which a runner has to shed in order to perform at his peak capacity. Okay, so those of you, some of you um, folks probably were either on the track team or maybe are on the track team or something like that. So what do you wear to a race? You wear blue jeans and a sweatshirt and combat boots? No. You, you wear the lightest clothing, lightest shorts, lightest shirt, lightest shoes that you can find. You are, you are dressed as lightly as you can be and be publicly decent, right? <laughs> so you can go as fast as you can go. That's the idea here. Put off the excess weight in your life. And this is in distinction to sin. Because he says, put off every encumbrance... Those are the non-sinful things that weigh us down. Those are the non-sinful things, like the time wasters and, and stuff like that. Now, I'm not saying that every time you sit down and watch a movie, that's wrong or anything. That's, that's not the point. The point is, you, you don't want to let something take over your life to the point where it's pushing God out of your life. And those are the encumbrances, those non-sinful things like that. And then he says, put off the sin which so easily entangles us. Okay, so there's non-sinful things and there are sinful things. We all have what are called besetting sins in our lives, maybe things that are, that are hidden that others don't see that we need to repent of and, and put off of our lives. What this um, sin that so easily entangles us reminded me of is I used to read a lot of books about uh, soldiers in Vietnam. And they'd have to go through these jungles. And there was this vine that was common in the jungles of Vietnam called a wait-a-minute vine. At least the soldiers called it a wait-a-minute vine. And why did they call it a wait-a-minute vine? Well, that's because as they're walking along, and they, this vine always gets tangled around their feet. And they go, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> and they got to go either untangle their feet or cut the vine away from their feet or whatever. So those are the things that come in and entangle up your feet the sins that tangle you up and keep you from living your, your spiritual life. So we're going to put off two things. We're going to put off encumbrances and sins. And then he wants us to do something. He wants us to stop something. Now he wants us to do something. Let us run the race with endurance. And here we're back to that uh, runner on the track metaphor. I want to make a few observations here about the actual words here. The word endurance is the word hupomone, which literally means to abide under. It's the idea that you are to stay under something. In other places, it's translated patience or perseverance, or basically it means to endure with constancy, to be constantly enduring what you have to endure. And then, in what condition do we do this? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Um, I like the way A.W. Tozer 
used to put this. He called it the gaze of the soul. We don't look at Jesus with our own eyes. We don't see him physically, obviously. We don't. Those that claim that do, well, there's some theological problems there. <laughs> so we're talking about fixing the gaze of the soul, of the mind on Jesus Christ, of the heart on Jesus Christ. So fixing means to look away from all these other things, to focus our eyes on Jesus. This is where the main problem of the Hebrews is found. They had taken their eyes, they had taken the gaze of their soul off Jesus and placed their gaze on their circumstances. And when you do that, and it's very hard to look away, because, like I say, if you're up to your neck in alligators, it's hard to look away from the alligators. But you have to work at disciplining the mind to look at Jesus. That's the thing that we have to do. Now, Jesus here is described as the author and perfecter of faith. So he's the source of our faith, and he is the one who brings it to its completion. Right? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right? So he is the one who's going to help us through these difficulties. He's the one who's going to raise up this faith within us to enable us to deal with these things. Now, that's a pretty easy thing to say, right? Just put your eyes on Jesus. All you need is Jesus. You know, somebody's always got some kind of glib little thing to throw at you, you know, and you're kind of bummed out. You know, when you, all you need is Jesus. Well, you don't put that kind of thing on people, you encourage them. The Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. You know what a paraclete is? A paraclete of somebody means one who is called out alongside. So when somebody is in difficulty like that, you don't wag your finger at them. You come alongside them and encourage them. And that's exactly what Jesus will do. That's exactly what he sent the Holy Spirit to do for us, to come along and encourage us. Who did God send with Paul on his missionary journeys? Barnabas. What is Barnabas' name? What does it mean? Son of encouragement. Not son of, you know, know, finger wagging. Not son of, you know, stick a pool cue in your back and make you work. No, it's son of encouragement. Give encouragement to people who are down like that. So remember, this is just trying to reorient our perspective, get it off the horizontal and put that perspective back onto the vertical. It's a basic form of discipline, a mental discipline, and that's hard. That's hard to learn how to change the way you think. It takes a lot of effort. But it sets all the practical matters of life back to where they should be in perspective. He's asking something that's hard to focus thinking, to be faithful to the promises of God, just like the people in chapter 11. Thinking is hard work, and again, this is not the carrot and stick approach here. The problem lies in the area of the will, not in the lack of knowledge. We know what we need to do. It's a matter of disciplining our minds to consistently and do it again with constancy with endurance, with remaining in those circumstances and focusing our mind on God. I used to have a plaque that was hanging in my house. I don't know if I still have it or not. It says, hope is not a way out. Hope is a way through. 
You have to get through the situation, not just out of it. And who is this Jesus, anyway, that's supposed to be our helper? He's somebody who went through circumstances so terrible that he asked his father to take it away from him. So he's not somebody who doesn't understand what it's like to be driven to the breaking point. Because that's exactly what he prayed for in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, let this pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. So he understands. He understands the difficulty of being driven to that point. He understands it's like a runner who hits the wall. You know, there's a part in a, I think I saw in the parking lot, somebody had a 26.2 sticker on their car, you know, a marathoner. And they say there's a point in a marathon called the wall. It's somewhere around 18 or 19 miles where it literally feels like your body has just run flat into a wall and you can't endure the pain anymore. And it takes a lot of discipline to keep going and to push yourself through that wall, to keep on going. And that's kind of the idea here is, you know, the, the legs are cramping up, you're in pain, maybe you've got blisters on your feet, and, and you know, all you want to do is just stop, go home, put your feet up, get in the bathtub, do whatever you want to do to get kind of built back up. But no, he's saying push on through. Put your eyes on Jesus and keep pushing on through. So how is he going to help us encourage us to deal with this pain. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus who endured the cross, despising its shame. And again, he's not wagging his finger here. He's basically coming along and saying, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Now, there are martyrs. There are people who get killed. And for them, it's that bad. Is it that bad for us? No, it's not. It's not. This is sort of like, um, remember when you were a kid, a little boy, a little girl, and you fell down, and the first thing you did was start bawling. You got, you got, you got you know, all these tears in your eyes, and then mom or dad walked over, and they go, hmm, okay, nothing's broke. I don't see any blood. Look, it's okay. You're all right. <laughs> you're okay. You're okay. You know, he's, he's, you're encouraging the child that this is not that bad, okay? You don't need to lose it over something that's this minor, okay? And keep that perspective. Think of that type of thing, that it's just not that bad. Jesus endured far worse. He was driven to the point of saying, God, take this away from me. And yet he is the one who is here to encourage us to perfect our faith if we just keep our eyes on him. So that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Now the word consider there, consider him who, is, um, who endured such hostility against sinners. The word consider is analogia. That's where we get our word the analogy from. Jesus was perfectly righteous and received contradiction and scorn from the same kinds of people who scorn you and me. Why do they, why do they hate Christians? Why do people hate Christians? It's because they hate Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you know, they hate you because they first hated me. 
That's why. We're, we're joining him just like we, we join the people in chapter 11. We're also joining in with Jesus in the kinds of sufferings that he went through. And it's because of who he is. So the point is, look at where he ended up after he went through his pain. Look at where he is now. Well, where is he right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been exalted. He's been lifted up. So why is that supposed to be encouraging to us? Because Jesus took the pain required to obey God and considered it nothing compared to enduring what that, I'm sorry, compared to what enduring that pain would bring him. Paul had the same thought. You can look at this later in Romans 8, 16 through 18. Paul instructs us that the sufferings of this life are nothing compared to the exaltation and glory that awaits us. And you can look that up again. Again, this is a common theme. What we are enduring now is nothing compared to what's coming in the future. The old-fashioned phrase is keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes in the prize. So what causes us to grow weary? Let's take a quick look at that. Basically, it's the expenditure of spiritual energy and encountering pain. You know, they say it's not the mountain that wears you out, it's the rock in your shoe. So those are the kinds of things that cause us to lose interest. Pain makes you rethink the race you're in. Pain makes your mind wander and search for something less painful. Prayer, for example, is work. We don't seem to be getting anywhere in prayer, and prayer becomes a problem. Our study of the Word becomes a source of pain again because it's work. It's frustrating. We start finding other things to take its place, things which please the flesh and don't profit us spiritually. I like to look at these things like chewing gum. You know, they got a lot of flavor, but no nourishment. You know, it's sort of like saying, man, I'm really hungry, I'm really starved. I'll stuff a big wad of chewing gum in my mouth. Mmm, -hmm, well, that tastes great. Are you nourished? No. <laughs> you're not nourished. You're, you're pleased, your flesh is pleased, but you're not nourished by that. The things which verse 1 here exhorts us to put away from us are the things we find to do instead of prayer. You know, the encumbrances and the sins, all those other things that we like to substitute. We don't seem to be receiving the promises because we slack off in our faith. He's really gotten under our skin a little bit with this. Now he wants to bring us to another form of encouragement. He's going to go into some explanations here. You know, we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin, literally antagonizing against sin. Did you know that to put sin out of your life or me out of my life, you have to have an antagonistic attitude towards sin? That's the idea. You're an antagonist. You have to choose to antagonize against sin. This is not a, again, this isn't, the finger-wagging thing. This is, it's not that bad. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. When you're proven wrong, don't go, hmm. you, know, you get tired of constantly being told, I'm wrong. I'm wrong again. Okay, okay, fine. 
You know, you don't want to lose heart. You don't want to get in the attitude that, you know, I don't need, I'm sick of hearing this. I'm tired of being told I'm wrong. I'm tired of hearing or being corrected or any such thing like that. And why, why is that? It's because we're God's child. And he loves us and wants the best for us. He wants the best for us. And that, that was hard. I, I don't know how many times when I was a teenager listening to my mother or trying not to listen to my mother or my father. And it's amazing the older I get how much smarter and smarter and smarter my parents get. It is absolutely amazing how truthful they were about things. And I have to look back and there's some, there, at some point in my life I looked in the mirror and I went, I am turning into my dad. <laughs> and you will too, or your mom, you know, you will too. Because you're going to find out that that stuff that they were telling you was for your good. And even though you didn't like it, you might have thought it was painful or something, you didn't like it, but it was for your good. And you'll probably be repeating it to your kids. So, discipline, and this is my favorite word in the whole thing, obviously, um, the title is God's Discipline. The word discipline here, and I really want you to walk out the door with this one in your pocket. The word is paideus. Does that sound familiar, paideus? It's where we get the word pediatric from, or pediatrician. It very specifically means the training of a child. God disciplines us, God child raises us, is what that means. When you hear God discipline, God will discipline you, it really means God will child train you. God will train you as a child because we are children of God. It's not just some you know, hallmark card phrase. We are truly his children. And he will, he will raise us in that way. It's never, ever used in the scriptures to mean punishment. It's never used of punishment. It is used of correction, but not punishment. I used to have a pastor friend named uh, Craig who was a pediatrician himself. And he used to tell me sometimes they had a little girl on him, Heather at the time. And he used to tell me like she would cough or she'd be sick or something and his mind, as his doctor, his mind would go racing with all these possible things that might be wrong with her. But mostly it was because, well, Heather was his little girl and he loved her and he didn't want her to be sick or he didn't want her to be hurt. Can you imagine what it's like to have a God who is both a father and a pediatrician. That's kind of what we have. God is the great physician. God is the great physician. We have one who cares for us not only as a father, but also like a doctor. Both. And that, that's about as comprehensive a bit of care as you can possibly have in your life. Justin, he's a doctor. But we like to react uh, like children do to the needle, don't we? <laughs> I don't want that. No, get away. Oh, all right here. I don't like needles, so you probably don't either. 
And don't faint when you're approved. Faint means to give out and lose heart. No, this isn't doing any good. Reproved just simply means to be shown what you're doing is wrong. That's all reproved is. Somebody comes along and says, this isn't wrong and this is why. And that person has proved to you what you're doing or not doing is wrong. And that's all it means is don't, don't you know, shrink away from that. Don't faint just because somebody is showing you you know, what, what's wrong and what you need to be doing right. The noun form of that means conviction. So when he's saying when you are convicted, don't faint when you're convicted by God. For those whom the Lord is angry with, he punishes and he scourges every son whom he rejects. Now, is that what it says? No, no, no. For the Lord loves everyone he receives. We have been received into the family of God. He loves all who he receives. And he scourges every son that he receives. So we've been received into this relationship. And that's part of it. That's part of being received into God's family is to undergo this kind of paideus, this child training. So the pace quickens a little bit at this point because the writer is summarizing his arguments. So in verses uh, 7 and 8, we're called sons of God. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there as father doesn't discipline? It's a common sense argument. Stay with the program so God can raise you as a son. And you know what father doesn't take care of their, their son? His son. The pain that you are enduring, and this is key. This is also an encouragement too. The pain that you're enduring is proof of your salvation. If you're able to go off and sin in any way, shape, manner, or form and not feel anything about it and not have any tinge of guilt, any sense that you're doing wrong, there may be cause to question your salvation. Whereas God is going to reprove you. He's going to, he's going to help you understand that what you're doing is wrong. And that's all part of it. That's part of being one of his children. It is to be comforted by the conflict within you. I heard a, a pastor I know of um, was preaching one time in another church when I was attending there. And he had a college-age girl in his office. And she was in tears. And she was confessing that she was struggling with a sin in her life. And, you know, just, you know, the tear factory was operating a full steam. And he looked at her and he said, you know what? The fact that you are having all this internal conflict about this is probably the evidence of the Holy Spirit within you working on this. So don't give up. Don't turn away. You might be, you might be you know, looking, to, looking for salvation when really you should just be looking for grace. Because I think that's a very important thing. That's a very important encouragement that a Christian has conflict within them over sin. And that is evidence that we are children of God. So I find that to be very encouraging. So we respected our own fathers. That's a common sense argument. If you can respect the father who gave you physical life, can't you respect the father that gives you eternal life? Okay, it's a very simple analogy. 
He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now there's the goal of the whole thing. The whole purpose to all of this is to share in his holiness. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Well, quite literally that says, you shall be holy ones for I am a holy one. And this is the whole point of doing this. He says in verse 11 that when this happens, it's uh, not joyful but sorrowful. Uh, sorrowful here is used as something overwhelming. It's used in the Garden of Gethsemane when the disciples were sleeping from sorrow over the coming crucifixion of Jesus. Something that, that is so sorrowful, all you want to do is just climb in bed and get away from it. So yes, it can be very intense. This, this child training can be very, very intense. Paul uses it in Romans 9 too to describe the grief he feels over the lost condition of the nation of Israel. It's that same sort of just intense sorrow and burden. But those who have been trained by it, well, here's another word that you might recognize. The word trained is the Greek word, excuse me, the Greek word gymnasia. Well, what does that sound like? Gymnasium? That is indeed it. That is where we get the word gymnasium from. So the idea is that you're trained to the point of exhaustion. Like after that two and a half hour workout that you've just been, been run through by your coach. Okay, you're trained to the point of exhaustion. But those who have been worked out by it, what's the end result? When the victory is won and the conflict is over, the resulting state is a placid conscience, a sense of God's pleasure, and the opportunity for rest. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the whole point of the, of the, of the exercise. And then we become a little bit more like God. And then something else starts up. <laughs> and you go through the same process again. So let's just in conclusion return now to our pilgrim friends on board that ship. They were there in the winter of 1620. Did you know they came in the middle of the winter? You know, usually you see stuff and it's them in the summer. But they came in the middle of the winter. And what did they endure? What did they go through? Of the 102 people who were there, half of them died. Half of them died. Records indicate they could not bury their dead due to the winter and had to leave them until the thaw. So basically, one out of every two people, you know, you live, you die, you live, you die, you live, you die. And they all had to be dragged off the ship and laid out on the ice because they couldn't go bury them. The ground was frozen. They ran out of normal provisions. They had to break into their seed corn. You know, you're in real trouble if you've got to eat your seed corn. If you're eating the very corn that you intend to plant, that's a real problem. If they ran out of that, they're finished. Finally, the thaw, the spring came, and they buried their dead. And they planted the seed that they had, and they prayed. They made friends with the Indians by the grace of God and went through the summer. If there were people who had opportunity to be bitter with God, these people were it. The end? Well, they had a tremendous harvest, a fantastic return on their seed, a magnificent abundance, 
After the long winter of death, they had an unbelievable comeback. They did not become bitter. Instead, they called a feast. We call it Thanksgiving. We not only join the ancient Hebrew cloud of witnesses, but we also join some uniquely American witnesses to the faithfulness of God. So let's not become bitter in our struggles. Let's return thankfulness and let's return the gaze of our mind back to God and do our best to keep it there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning uh, for the opportunity to be encouraged by your word. We ask to be further encouraged as Pastor Curtis leads us in communion. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.